Hello from me, Norman Swan, with a very special health report this week at the end of the year. We have some of the key experts you've been listening to, reading and watching over this terrible year of the coronavirus. It's a moment to reflect, to take stock, and look ahead to both 2021 and indeed the next pandemic. With me are Ryan McIntyre, who's Professor of Global Biosecurity at the University of New South Wales Kirby Institute, Eric Topol, who's Professor of Molecular Medicine at Scripps Research in the United States, James McCaw, Professor in Mathematical Biology at the University of Melbourne, who's been running one of the leading modelling programmes advising governments, and Associate Professor Kamalini Lokuge, who leads the Humanitarian Research Programme at the Australian National University School of Public Health. Welcome to you all. Good morning, Norman. Raina, what do we know, you know, as the dust is settling or not as the case, what do we know and don't know about the origins of this novel coronavirus? Well, we know that phylogenetically it's related to bat coronaviruses and those bats are not in Hubei province where the first cluster of cases occurred. They're in another part of China. One school of thought assumes that it's a natural event that's emerged through an intermediary animal host. That intermediary animal host has not yet been identified. And of course, there's a WHO group um, investigating the origins at the moment. With no access to China to do it. Yeah. So they're not going to find out, are they? No, it's unlikely at this stage. You know, I mean, the other question, of course, is about whether it was a lab, accidental lab release or somehow an unnatural origin. The fact is the seafood market where the first cases occurred was close to the BSL-4 lab in Wuhan, which was experimenting with bat coronaviruses. But I think it's very unlikely that we'll get any useful information at this late stage. So that was one of the first super spreading events. And what do you make of the sewage results from Italy suggesting cases in December, this little boy in Milan retrospectively testing positive, possibly November, and the chef, the Algerian chef in France testing positive late December? Did it come out of China or did it spread out of China early? What's your thinking along those lines? Well, I think we should keep an open mind and we should really look at all the evidence. And there is now multiple lines of evidence showing that it did emerge prior to when we were originally told it emerged, December 2019. There's also a serological study from the US which shows that it was people were seropositive for the virus in December last year in the US. And then there was a sewage sample from Spain, which was positive in March 2019. So, you know, in epidemiology of infectious diseases, we're always taught to look at the outliers. Some people just ignore the outliers and look at the data they can make sense of. But it's really important to look at outliers and try and work out what is that outlier telling you about the origin of the epidemic? So let me push you. What's your best guess? Well, I'm keeping an open mind. I think it's not necessarily the simple narrative we've been fed. And we need to keep an open mind and look at all the lines of evidence. However, I think the the type of investigation that's needed, it goes way beyond the scope or the skills of a, a health team going in to look at it. The health team can pull together the phylogenetic evidence and give us some phylogenetic trees and tell us, you know, what the, the um, origin was from an evolutionary perspective. But that cannot tell us about gain-of-function research, for example. I think some of the people who vocally sort of said it's definitely a natural origin, etc., are talking about this kind of splice and dice genetic engineering where you'd obviously see evidence of engineering, but gain-of-function research, which is serial passage of a virus through a living 
being, whether it's an animal or a human, can also create mutations and evolution of a virus, which is not easily detected. And indeed, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing gain-of-function tests. In fact, they published on it two or three years ago, yeah. uh, although it's not necessarily the same virus. Eric Topol, I mean, infamously, this virus, when it hit the United States, or when we know it hit the United States, went underground in Washington State for about six weeks. At least, and that's because there was really no testing capacity in the country. And even though the University of Washington tried to get that mobilized, it was squashed by the government, by the CDC and FDA. So basically, we were having this virus spread throughout without any ability to uh, detect it through any molecular testing. I mean, one of the themes, Eric, in, in this is that you, you can get, the bio, you can get a, a nasty virus, but it's we humans that make the difference to this. And it lands in China, in Russia, you know, the Philippines, the United States, at a time when there's fragile authoritarian leaderships. And what's your perspective that the, of the fertile political, geopolitical ground that the virus landed on? Well, there's an apt description for the United States, unfortunately. Uh, and the uh, malperformance in response uh, is tied to the political leadership that, as you know, uh, was downplaying it, knew very well how potent and potentially fatal the virus was, but the public was not brought into that possibility. And that was, of course, with the issues of lack of testing and lack of respecting the virus's potential, uh, that is, making the economic priorities of reopening politically motivated rather than uh, science-oriented or, or driven. And just briefly, where you've been watching the, the literature over a very broad spectrum like Reiner has, although this is not necessarily your core area. What's your take on the origins? There's still work that needs to be done. Fortunately, there are people uh, that are on it, and certainly we can learn more. I agree with Reina about the need to look at orthogonal data and information to try to do the best we can and not just accept the way it's just laid out. So we still have a more to learn on this and I hopefully in the months ahead we will. Kamalini Lukugi, I mean you worked in Liberia on the Ebola pandemic. We'll come back to how you what you learned from that. You must have watched this with interest as it started. What were you thinking as you saw this emerging through January and February? I was actually in Sierra Leone when it first started, and I wouldn't say interest. I was scared from the beginning. The reports that were coming out even early on from China, it was clear that it was a significant infectious disease. And because it was a respiratory pathogen and appeared to have high mortality, I was very concerned. And equally, I think... There was indicated that there wasn't a recognition of what potential it had, particularly in developed countries. What were the features of what you'd learned from Ebola that you thought we've got to get ready for? Like with any infectious disease or any high-risk pathogen that doesn't have specific treatments, so a specific preventive vaccine or curative treatment, you rely on non-pharmaceutical interventions, and they are entirely based on how governments, health services, policymakers engage and support communities. And I think that is the most important learning we have from every outbreak we've done of Ebola, and it's something that is 
core practice. It's foundational in developing countries when dealing with diseases like this. And I think the countries that dealt with SARS had that understanding too, whether they were developed or developing. But it's not part of practice generally in infectious disease control in developed countries. There's an over-reliance on curative medicine and technical interventions, and that's the thing that worried me the most. We'll come back to that, obviously, with all our other panellists. You're listening to Radio National's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. My guests are Kamalini Lukugi from the ANU, Rhonda McIntyre from the University of New South Wales, James McCall, who you're about to hear from the University of Melbourne, and Eric Topol from Scripps Research in San Diego and California. James McCall, we were ready for a flu pandemic. We weren't ready for a SARS pandemic, were we? Broadly speaking, but our preparedness has actually always been based on being able to respond to any different sort of respiratory virus. So um, the first work that I was involved in, we we were looking to how to respond to a SARS-like or flu-like virus. And indeed, the coronavirus has some characteristics of both of them. So overall, I think we were prepared to respond to something like this. I completely agree with the other panellists about was society prepared and and, we haven't faced something like this for 100 years. The other thing I wanted to to add, independent of what the ultimate origins of this virus may turn out to be, and we should keep an open mind on that, it is definitely the case that the events that happened in Wuhan and then how it spread from there are the, I believe, the origins of the actual pandemic in terms of how we had to respond to it and how it got going around the world. Meaning Wuhan was the springboard? The springboard, and in terms of how we respond to it, as opposed to where it came from, how we respond to it, that's the defining moment. And I think it's worth keeping that in mind as we also do that work to to try and figure out maybe where it came from in the first place. Now, this has been, at least, I'll come back to Eric in a moment, but at least in the Australian context, it's been a modelling-driven response, at least it was in the first few months. And there were people, I think Kamalini would be one of them, would say, and Kamalini's already said it, the the response is on the ground, it's a public health response, you know what to do, modelling doesn't really help you. As a modeler, <laughs> having just destroyed your career for you, I mean, what contribution, when you sit back now, what contribution did modeling make to the response, at least in Australia? And I'll come back to whether it made a difference in America yeah, in a minute. So, so, on the 17th of January, me and colleagues were on a WHO call, and like Kamali, we learnt about this virus. Some of the earliest data was studied by modelers in, over the next two days, and it was clear that this was had the potential. It was the scary virus. It had the potential to be spreading rapidly. And in late January and early February, modelers, me and Dr. Rob Moss and Professor Jody McPernan, put together a paper for National Cabinet. At the time, it was the National Security Committee that showed what a virus with a reproduction number of around two would do if it was allowed to spread through the population. And we also showed how a certain level of interventions could change the outcome. A set of very simple curves. And that is, in contrast to the United States, that advice and that scenario was acted on immediately and set Australia up for an effective and early, overall, early response. Of course, it is absolutely the case that the model doesn't actually change the behaviour of the virus. It only tells decision-makers 
what they may be faced with and it isn't on the ground response and I couldn't be in more strong agreement that it takes a, a public health service and people on the ground to make the difference. My role is a different one but a crucial one as well, I believe. So, Eric, we watch you know, with sadness watching what's happening, what's not happening now, but what happened then in the United States. Presumably, this modelling was available to American authorities as well. Absolutely. No, there were no shortage of modelers. And, uh, of course, they had some varying forecasts, but none of them were good. It was just ignored. It was in a state of denial. So we didn't get the respect the uh, science-driven part of what clearly was prominent in Australia and, and several other countries that had uh, extraordinary performance in countering uh, what could have been uh, such a, a major toll in the pandemic. I want to just ask you, because it'll be a recurrent theme during the show, is human and political behavior in some ways fueling a pandemic? And what it is you think it is about the United States? I mean, this is not new. I mean, the United States did badly in the 1918-1919 pandemic, the flu pandemic. So the hypothesis I've got is that there's actually something deeply entrenched in American culture about individualism, the power of the individual, freedom of the individual, which makes public health really hard to do. Or is that just colored by recent events? What's your broad view of trying to implement what James and Reiner and Kamalini are talking about in terms of public health interventions, which are not technological? Well, I think you're right in that the position of the United States was not conducive to a, a good response because of not having universal health care. And we've seen how the inequities led to far worse outcomes for people of color and people of lower socioeconomic status. So that's something that's important to recognize. Secondly, the lack of investment in public health resources, which had been very under-supported even before the current Trump administration, that was a big issue. But, you know, even with that, the lack of having any testing available for two months, the lack of being able to heed the, the uh, advising role of prominent scientists and public health experts is something on top of the liabilities. So, you know, I think as you stressed earlier, the leadership is extraordinarily important. So even with the deficits that we had, the response was disproportionately horrifying. Raina, we shut the borders, at least China, I think it was the 26th of January. You've calculated the effect of that. Yes, it made a huge impact, the shutting of the international borders initially to China. Then we did sort of selected border closures in early March to Iran, South Korea and Italy after the Grand Prix had occurred. And then um, we shut the international borders completely in the middle of March. That was a decision taken by the National Security Council. At that time, my understanding is that health was saying keep the borders open but National Security Council advised to close the borders, and I think that is the single most important disease control measure taken in Australia as, as an island. But at that stage, over 60% of our cases were imported from travel, and it's left us with a very manageable baseline so that we can jump on outbreaks, even outbreaks such as the Victorian second wave, which really the failure in control there was about the resourcing of public health, which Eric mentioned, where the Victorian Health Department and the public health infrastructure was very bare bones. It was the least well-resourced health system in the country, and they just couldn't keep up with the contact tracing. And there's been a failure to understand 
very bread and butter public health concepts by whoever's kind of, you know, making decisions that you actually do have to trace contacts. I mean, the UK SAGE Committee in February made a statement, which is now in their minutes, which are public, saying if the epidemic gets too big, we'll stop contact tracing. And then people like Neil Ferguson came out with their modelling and showed that actually you do have to do the contact tracing because after identifying the cases, which is where the US failed at the beginning with the lack of testing, the second most important thing is to get identify the contacts and quarantine them because they're the people who are going to be the next generation of cases And if you don't quarantine them, they're going to infect other people and then you get the exponential epidemic growth. So so the SAGE committee was saying, oh, we'll just stop contact tracing, which is another example of misinformed pseudo-experts, you know, making policy decisions that are extremely costly. And it's not just in the US. We've seen it all over the world. We in Australia are extremely fortunate that we've had good management, but the single most important thing was shutting the international borders. And there needs to be an understanding that the pandemic today is much worse globally than it was in March. So if we open those international borders, we're going to be in a much much worse situation than we were in March. And you alluded to tension at government level between and policies there in terms of you know slapping controls on the borders versus health. And there's still this theme that despite the fact that we've done well, some of the advice has been really odd. I mean, our infection control expert group has all along resisted the notion that this is aerosol spread. Yet, as we speak, I mean, people will be listening to this at various times, but as we speak, somebody in New South Wales, a driver, has been infected in a bus transporting air crew, international air crew, and the only way he could have got it is aerosol spread. Yeah, look, I think that the denial of airborne transmission is a global phenomenon, starting with WHO, and and then, you know, that makes it easy for any country to just cite the WHO and dig their heels in. But we've basically had probably a greater denial of airborne transmission in Australia than a lot of other places. Even the CDC is now acknowledging airborne transmission in, in indoor spaces and asking people to take precautions accordingly and mentioning ventilation. We've had no discussion of ventilation. We have um, invested a lot in the hotel quarantine program, which actually is part of the success story of Australia. That is a high-risk occupational setting. That is where people who work in that setting are going to be at risk of infection because our hotels are not selected based on their ventilation and their design features. They're just selected, you know, on this assumption that you just have to wipe surfaces and wash your hands and everything will be okay. And that's clearly not the case. So there's a huge cost to denial of airborne transmission. One of the costs is infection of aged care workers and health workers and other people at occupational risk. We've seen hotel quarantine staff victim blamed, you know, or they're sleeping with the tourists, they're doing the wrong thing, they're having parties when they're just in a high-risk occupational setting. They're victims, you know, of poor occupational health and safety protocols. We need to be addressing ventilation and respiratory protection adequately. James McCall. Two things. One, on the international borders, there was actually a risk assessment process in place through late January and early February that was indeed modelling informed and health was advocating for, I don't speak on behalf of the health department, of course, but the health department's advice to National Security Committee was to support those early border controls. And as Rainer says, that was absolutely crucial to protecting Australia's population in this in this situation. And then just another point is that Within our hotel quarantine system, there is actually, and has been for many months now, extensive 
discussion and approaches to risk management around the risk of airborne transmission and poor ventilation systems within certain hotel quarantine facilities. Indeed, those discussions have extended to where there are queries about reopening older hospitals or, or quarantine facilities. It's been identified that they may have very poor ventilation systems and put people within those facilities, workers and patients alike, at risk. These issues are well understood and of serious concern, as Raina said. I want to come back to Kamalini Lukugi now. Kamalini, you said on 7.30, and for Eric's sake, 7.30 is a current affairs television show, when I had you on, talking, you, one of the things that sticks in my mind that I've often quoted you saying is that it's not governments who control pandemics, it's communities. And people like you who actually understood how to control pandemics were not necessarily being consulted. You, Raina, and people at the Burnett and so on were not necessarily being consulted by the federal government on how to control it. But you were called in to the second wave in Victoria, which was spreading through the northwest corridor of Melbourne through very different, very diverse communities who were poor, lived in crowded circumstances and, and worked in a variety of super spreading industries such as abattoirs. What did you do when you went in? What was the challenge? Norman, before I talked about that, I wanted to respond to a couple of things that came up earlier. First, in regards to modelling, <laughs> I've worked with colleagues and we've modelled infectious diseases like Ebola, Lassa. Modelling is a very useful tool when used appropriately and I think it was useful in this outbreak to understand the potential threat, the impact that this disease could have. Raina mentioned the UK. One of the reasons I think the UK is where it is at the moment is that the models that informed early decisions didn't have very basic things like, as Raina said, community-based case detection. So they were focused on hospital-based case detection and there was almost an assumption which you know, the UK chief scientist went before Parliament and said that we're aiming for this idea of controlling it but not getting rid of it because it's such a transmissible disease. And having worked for many decades in countries with very limited resources and with infectious diseases like this, you know that you control it by identifying cases in the community early and making sure they don't have the opportunity to pass it on. And part of the advice I was giving in the background was around this critical component of contact tracing. And I developed a term called upstream contact tracing because I realised, for example, if I talk to a nurse in Congo about contact tracing, they will know that that means figuring out who the person was in contact with once they became infectious, but just as importantly working out, or even more importantly, how they acquired that infection and the links in the transmission chain that led to them being infected. And that was not something that was well recognised here. I think in certain subgroups of the health services like the TB programs, that's bread and butter, they recognise that but it was much less understood. And so... Particularly when you've got a, a, a disease or an infection that spreads by clusters and you, you've got to identify upstream what those clusters were and find clusters that you might not know about. Well, every cluster is a transmission chain linked by individuals having contact with each other. And that idea that you need to find every single connection 
in order to completely understand transmission and control it was something I think that is clear now but wasn't clear, particularly in countries that haven't dealt with these sorts of diseases. So I think that was critical. And in terms of the early days in Victoria, there's a, a report that is public. I chaired the, a working group on preventing resurgence that was providing advice to the Commonwealth Government in April our report outlined, and Raina was part of that group and several other experts, where the real risk of resurgence or re-emergence of this disease was in communities and subpopulations that for a variety of reasons were at increased risk of not getting tested or of having to continue, for example, essential work because of barriers to accessing healthcare or sick leave, and also who had wider social networks that were linked to essential work or communities and extended families. Those were the characteristics of the outbreak in Victoria. And when that happened, several times I've been told that was prophetic. It wasn't prophetic. It's the nature of infectious diseases. It's how human populations have interacted with them for thousands of years. So, again, it comes back to a fairly fundamental understanding of how these diseases move through the community. I might stop there because if you want to ask your question again, Norman. No, no, we'll, we'll come back to that because we're, we're, we're going to get short of time. But, I mean, I'll come back to Eric. I mean, that's absolutely the pattern in the United States is that, I mean, even the first wave in New York State, you know, Manhattan had relatively few cases compared to Queens and areas of high-density population and poverty. Yes, I think the heterogeneity has been noted, uh, you know, all around the world, and as you just described, for sure. I mean, Camelini went in and actually worked with those communities. To what extent have people actually gone in and worked in those communities in the United States? Well, there's been a very limited ability, as I described earlier, the lack of public health resources, the lack of contact tracing. It's been very limited. You know, not just the example you gave in New York earlier, but throughout, there has been hiring uh, de novo of people to work, to, to go into communities, but still the ratio of their ability to match up with the overwhelming spread of infections is just, it's just completely out of bounds. While I've got you, Eric, there's a new administration coming in, but you've got unprecedented numbers of cases we probably won't get onto the vaccine story, but I mean, it's an amazing scientific story that we got vaccines so quickly and they look as if they are effective, at least in preventing disease. I mean, what is the incoming administration going to be able to do face with this overwhelming pandemic, which will continue for quite some time to come, even with vaccines? Well, for one, you could actually do the kind of public health 101 mitigation measures like universal masking, enforcing the use of masks, not allowing rallies of 500,000 people to come together like it did in South Dakota, no less even smaller gatherings. I mean, basically mitigation, which hasn't even been pushed at any point along the way. The other thing is communication. People like Tony Fauci and other key advisors were sidelined, and there was no communication except by Trump himself in basically campaign uh, messages. We will have now a, a task force. Uh, obviously, Tony Fauci will play a role, but many others. And every day there will be briefings so that the public will know, you know, the status and, and what needs to be done. So the leadership will make a big difference. And, you know, over the months going forward, vaccines will be kicking in. So I'm 
optimistic that we will get on the right page here, which we haven't been uh, since it started. And if the vaccines don't prevent transmission? Well, there are some new data now, both from the Moderna trial that was uh, the FDA documents yesterday, as well as AstraZeneca. It looks pretty good. It looks like transmission will be suppressed, maybe not 100 percent, but maybe, you know, at least uh, 70 to 90 percent. So it's looking favorable, but we need to wear masks throughout the year and to practice distancing just because we don't know. Also, we don't know how many people are not going to develop the a desirable level of neutralizing antibodies. So just for insurance policies, not just for transmission, but for the vulnerability of people who get vaccines, we need to gear up until this is all settled, until we get really good levels of population immunity. James McCall, what does modeling tell you? If you look globally now at the way the pandemic will go and you plug in vaccines and you plug in other public health measures, what's your prediction for 2021 about where this is going to go? So I think where this is going to go, and it's based as much on observed epidemiology of past pandemic viruses as it is on any modelling of this one, I think we're going to see continued waves and surges of infection across the globe. And the natural tendency of these systems is that every wave is, you know, the waves get smaller over time and the troughs get shallower so that they're well, they're not at the moment they're getting bigger yes we're still on the early stages of the global pandemic and to the vaccine a vaccine if it prevents infection and and reduces transmission if you are infected that will dampen those waves and it will help us get to a, a stage um sort of a global view where this virus becomes an endemic pathogen which we will, one way or another, learn to live with like we do with many other viruses. I think I said as early as March or April, I think there was already enough infection that the global eradication of the virus would be highly unlikely. And locally, it's possible, like we've seen in parts of Australia. So I think over the long term, the virus is here. We will be living with it over the rest of our lives, is my, my prediction. Rhonda McIntyre... We rely on multilateral organisations like the World Health Organisation to bring things together, particularly for low to middle income countries. One of the features of COVID-19, which we haven't had time to get into, is that it landed on the world when there was probably a low in international cooperation between countries. So it's been every country for themselves. And whilst it was ridiculous that America left WHO, it's going to come back now that Biden's back, WHO has not covered itself in glory, though, in this, has it? No, they've been behind the science almost every step of the way. So at the beginning, when we first became aware of the outbreak, they were saying it wasn't growing because the case definition was restricted to severe pneumonia. Then they said it's not a pandemic. Then they said it's, they actually said it's not transmissible human to human. Then they said... It's not. There's no asymptomatic transmission when there was already a lot of evidence that there was substantial asymptomatic transmission. And then they said it's not airborne. So they've been kind of behind the science all the way. And I don't know whether there's political influences or ideological influences or what's been behind it, but they've not been the go-to agency to get the latest from. You know, you have to follow the scientists and the researchers and keep your eye on the ball to, to really um, get a grasp on what's going on. But just to go back to the, the co last comment by James, I don't think we have to accept living with COVID in Australia. Of, of course, we don't know the duration of immunity that the vaccines will confer, and we won't know that for a few years yet until we get adequate follow-up. 
But if we use a high efficacy vaccine, we can achieve herd immunity in Australia. And given that we're in a very good position in terms of reducing very low levels of, you know, occasional sort of um, sporadic cases and small clusters, which we can jump on top of quickly, we should be ambitious. We should be aiming to achieve herd immunity. That's the quickest road to full economic recovery. And it is possible in Australia. There are vaccines with high efficacy. We just have to make the right choices and judicious choices about which vaccines we're going to really throw all our effort at trying to procure. If we put all our eggs in one basket, end up the vaccines are going to have different safety and different efficacy, and that's going to become clearer as the process rolls out. And the safety issue is because rare adverse events often can't be picked up by clinical trials, so you have to look at the post-licensure rollout of vaccine in millions of people before you can detect rarer side effects. So there will be differences in both safety and efficacy, and if we don't have a diverse enough vaccine portfolio, we may not be able to achieve that goal, but it is a possible goal, it's a feasible goal, and it's much easier to achieve in Australia because we, in addition to leadership, the other factor is culture. We saw the Global Health Security Index launched last year with great fanfare, which ranked America and the United States at the top of the, the list of all countries for preparedness. So clearly that Global Health Security Index missed out on some key predictors of determinants of response. And I think they're both leadership and culture, but culture can be overcome by good leadership. So in a highly individualistic culture, basic public health measures are draconian by nature. So it's going to be very difficult without good leadership to implement those public health measures. And we've seen, you know, things like masks and vaccines become politicized, become symbols of oppression in countries like the US, so, rather than being seen for what they are. And just finally, and before I come back to Camelini, talking about the next pandemic, your argument then would be you need to actually learn from the role of leadership, coming back to what Eric Topol was saying, communication and other things, those basic things that are non-technological to be able to control the next pandemic when it comes out you know, and not rely too much too early on technology. Look, to anyone who's actually worked in public health and understands it, you know, things like contact tracing and case finding are bread and butter public health. We do it for measles, TB, meningococcal disease, etc., but unfortunately, we've, you know, since the 2009 pandemic, I think we've had a bit of a hijacking of public health in pandemic preparedness. So there's all over the world, uh, including in WHO, the, the people who are sort of providing the key advice don't necessarily have the expertise. So a lot of people in those positions have been learning all about contact tracing this year, as Carmelini said, when it's nothing new. It's not some mystical thing, you know, it's basic bread and butter public health. For many serious epidemics and pandemics, it's non-pharmaceutical interventions are all you've got at the beginning. And you need to understand what they are, how they can be implemented, and generally that they all need to be implemented together to have the most effect on epidemic control. Camelini, just briefly, what's got to happen next for the next pandemic? Several people mentioned the critical role closing the borders had. And, you know, I've fought hard to defend the capacity for public health to manage borders. But I think we have to recognise that at the same time as the borders were important, the community took on significant restrictions. There was already enough disease in the community. And at that time, there was not the testing or 
contact tracing capacity to deal with even relatively small, low levels of transmission. But the community took that on. They stayed home from work, stopped going shopping. Actually, we saw decrease in mobility and social interaction before anything was advised by government or regulations were passed. And I have great faith in our capacity to deal with these in the future. Early on, the discourse was Australians won't take on restrictions, but the fact was they did, and to a very, very high level. The same will happen in the future. I think as public health experts, we owe a huge, invaluable debt to the community. They got us through this at a time when our systems weren't strong. They will do so again. Our role is to support them. And that aspect you brought up about subgroups of the community that have more challenges in engaging, there's been a lot that's been done since the start. You know, now casual workers have access to sick leave, temporary visa holders are supported to quarantine and isolate. All those things are things that keep us safe as a community. And I think our governments recognise that Australians value that. We have universal health care. So I'm confident in the next pandemic, if as public health experts we support our communities to do what they need to do, we'll be able to respond as effectively as we did now, or even better, I think. Eric Tobol, just finally, are you optimistic about the next pandemic? Well, we have to get through the nightmare of this one, unlike what you all have done in Australia, which has been model uh, performance and uh, especially how you prevailed over the whole threat in Victoria. No, we, we I think, um, have learned a lot. Uh, hopefully, if, if and when, I should say when that comes, we will have the dedicated public health resources and investment. I think on the one hand, you, we, we performed extraordinarily well on the vaccine side. So hopefully that platform of being able to develop vaccines quickly, in fact, even before a pandemic uh, will be the mode. So, you know, I think this has been a harsh lesson with so many lives lost and so many people with chronic COVID suffering. But hopefully when the time comes, we'll be answering the call a whole lot better than what happened over this past year. Eric Topol, thank you very much. Eric Topol, Professor of Molecular Medicine at Scripps Research in San Diego. Thanks very much to James McCaw as well, who's been always available, um, and mostly on television. I've been interviewing James and um, always able to take the brick brats and throw them back and do it, doing it incredibly well and, and calmly with authority. Thank you very much indeed. And have... A great Christmas professor in mathematical biology at the University of Melbourne, Professor Raina McIntyre, who's always been available. I, I forgot to say that what Raina did was, um, I think we had her on, had you on, Raina, maybe third week in January, and I asked you what uh, your level of concern was. I think you said seven out of 10, which was sobering. And I think you had, had you on a week later, and you said nine out of 10, and that was terrifying. Professor Rana McIntyre, Professor of Global Biosecurity at the Kirby Institute, the University of New South Wales, and Kamalini Lukuge, also you know, done amazing work during this time, Associate Professor in, and runs the Humanitarian Research Programme in the School of Public Health at the Australian National University. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. I wish all our guests and all of you a great festive season. See you next time.